Hello, unfiltered friends. Today we have on someone who I call Dr. Justin, but the internet calls a modern therapist. And I have been so excited for this conversation, giving a professional opinion on some of the things that we see on social media. We discuss things that went on with Kanye West from a professional standpoint. Also, just two people talking and enjoying each other's company. If you enjoy this episode, make sure you share it on social media and tag me so I can share your posts. And make sure you support us on Patreon patreon.com slash unfiltered friends and without further ado here is a modern therapist welcome to the unfiltered friends podcast before we introduce you to our next friend i want you to take a moment to think about everything that led you to where you are right now do you see how strong you are do you see how great your story is I hope you do, and I hope you learn great lessons and get inspired by our next friend's story on the Unfiltered Friends Podcast. Hello, Dr. Justin. I I feel like calling you Dr. Justin, but I know, is that inappropriate? No, no. no. You you can call me Justin, too. You know, you can drop, you can drop that doctor. But you work so, I won't be offended. You work so hard for it. You do, but like my name has always been Justin. You know, that's that's who I am. I'm Justin. Okay. I'm still going to call you Dr. Justin, if that works. Well, it'll work. It's a sign we'll of respect. I'll salute you. <laughs> but for other people, how how should they address you? Who are you? Yeah, I'm I'm Dr. Justin Puder. I'm a licensed psychologist. And yeah, I, I got a private practice and I also make content on social media. Yeah, it's... It's got to be wild because I'm someone who it has gone through therapy and can identify a lot of things now, but you are someone who is a therapist. And so being exposed to a lot of the stuff that you see on TikTok has to be a bit wild for you sometimes because you have so much knowledge. Do you find that, uh, do you find that as you scroll your For You page? Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. I mean, you get curious about people's experiences because you're only getting part of the story so i think that's a unique thing no you're getting the absolute truth (laughs) come on you're like that's everything that's 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 all the information that's it (laughs) no but it's i think the unique privilege of being a therapist is when you sit down with people when you have hours and hours and hours of this intimate conversation you get as full of the picture as you're ever going to get so then on something like tiktok it feels like such a tease Mm. where people will give you like the peak of a story. And in my mind, I'm like, what happened the day before? What, what happened in your childhood? What happened? You know, you know, my mind goes to those places because you wonder all the pieces of the puzzle that make up what led to this situation. But again, we don't ever see that on social media. You just see the peak of one event. Right. And you see the version of that event that that person wants to portray so they look the best. Cuz most of the time. I mean, or that's going to get the most likes, comments, yeah, yeah. Right. How do, I mean, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about as a therapist watching people cuz man, every time I scroll my for you page, I am diagnosed by someone with no letters next to their name like PhD or any of that stuff with some new thing. And it's almost become, it feels trendy to have some sort of like mental disorder. 
And a lot of the people who are saying it are not qualified to diagnose. From a professional standpoint, what do you what do you see? Do you see that? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, you know, overall, I'm going to take it. I'm an elder millennial, right? Grew up <laughs> in the 90s where, and I know you can relate, Chris, like no one talked about mental health. Like no. I, I didn't know anybody Mm-mm. who's like, I got it there. Nobody. No. Like, you know, the even common things like depression, anxiety, nobody, nobody was mentioning that in the 90s. Yes. So for me to experience the opposite now, you know, as I'm approaching 40, it I'll take it over what we had to deal with mm. of quiet internal suffering where it, if it's not a physical issue, it doesn't exist. But on the other side of that, what I see a lot of content around is someone highlighting a single symptom and saying that equals this. Hmm. And this is something me and all my mental health friends talk about all the time. The toughest thing in mental health is what's called differential diagnosis, Mm -hmm. which is basically one symptom could mean a lot of things. Yes. So you'll see people who make these very attention grabbing things of like, did you know if you don't put your laundry away right away, that's a trauma symptom? And as a, that, that to my core, like I'm like, because the response is always, it could be, it could be an anxiety symptom, could be a depression symptom, could mean you're neurodivergent. It could mean a lot of things. It could mean you but don't when, like putting away your laundry, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It could just mean that that's a really low motivation task for you. And you're just, ugh, it just takes a lot of caffeine for you to do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like the pro and the con. People are way more open, especially Gen Z, more than ever about their mental health, which I love. Yes. Love that. Want more of that. But the con is you get a lot of people sharing their experience as if it's a capital T truth Mm -hmm. of, well, you know, I have trouble putting my laundry away and I got diagnosed with ADHD. So it's a symptom of it. It's like, no, that's not the complicated process of narrowing in on diagnosis. I mean, that is what we do as mental health professionals. And again, you have the privileged time and space to narrow down. It's not anxiety. It's not depression. It's not trauma. It looks like, again, a long history of ADHD here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like I like that perspective where because you're right, especially and and that's why I felt it really important when I went through therapy to share not only for like people my age, but especially men around my age, because there is this idea that we're supposed to just handle things on our own. It's kind of drilled into our brain. So the idea that you could go and seek help for a lot of those things. Um, I did get a lot of men, they don't comment, they privately message. It's like they're, it's almost like they're, so my perspective is a little different than a lot of people because they don't see front facing. My DMs are full of men (laughs) saying like, thank you for normalizing this or thank you for talking about your experience. Um, Now, one thing I do know with, uh, cause I do have a lot of mental health professionals in my community. Uh, I'm fr- friends with a lot of people who have gone through that. And I've noticed that a lot of them go into it initially to deal with things going on within themselves. You seem to have like a real passion for understanding the human mind. Was that just a natural predilection or was there something that happened within you that brought you to that point? 
Yeah, definitely the latter. I don't, I've always felt, and I know that a lot of other TikTok therapists throw that in quotes. Sometimes I, I roll at that myself, but <laughs> people with degrees yes. make content on TikTok and Instagram. Um, you know, you've been through something, but a lot of us feel like, you know, you don't necessarily fit a stereotypical norm of the field. And you're willing to sort of extend the boundaries to be with the people on social media. I mean, I I definitely feel that energy and I like, I like it a lot. But for me, I grew up, my brother had bipolar type one. And so he went through full manic episodes, was in and out of jail, got kicked out of high school. He was wow. one year older than me, caused a lot of trouble, um, eventually ended up dying of a drug overdose, mm. you know, trying to self-medicate um, through, again, just not having the proper care. And for people out there, bipolar is one of the hardest things to treat, period. Why? Um, because you're having the fluctuating manic episodes and my brother would dip all the way down to depression and kind of flop back and forth. It's very hard to treat when you're going through these uh, different poles. But aside from that, my dad died of brain cancer when I was 19. So I had these two very early tragedies of my dad and brother passing away that you know, what got me curious to take that first undergrad psych was my brother. Like why me and my brother, we grew up in the same home, we're the same parents and mm. we are night and day different. You know, that raises questions like, why are we so different? You know, I would watch his behavior and be like, why can't you get it together? Why do you have to be, you know, breaking all the rules all the time or go through these phases where it's like, you're talking faster, you're moving a mile a minute, like you're running out of the house. So, you know, that made me wonder, like, what is different here? But then, of course, like going through those traumas, um, it made me want to help people in the way that I got help. Because I was lucky enough that my mom, even though, even though, again, no one was going to therapy in Northeast Ohio, um, my mom was connected enough to know, like, I got to get this person in front of somebody who's not just a doctor. And she did. She got me hooked up with a therapist and it literally changed my life. Did you, uh, first of all, thank you for sharing that. You just shared a lot of really uh, heavy moments from your life. And I want to acknowledge that you you oh, did so freely because I know it's a lot easier to probably not. Um, but did you, did you come to an answer, you know, with what was going on with your brother as to the difference? Because again, same, same, same upbringing. Did you come to the answer as to why it was different for him? Biological. And we know that, you know, there's a few other people in my family who have bipolar disorder. So he got the genes that were right to get bipolar disorder. And then you always have the question of just was him interacting in the environment as he was an adolescent, you know, starting to use substances, did different environmental factors kick off those genes? But he certainly had it. And those genes are certainly in my family line when you look at severe mental health. Mm -hmm. So that was, I mean, that was the difference because a lot of other things are constant in the family. You know, you could always talk about birth order and kind of other things, but you know, those things can play a role, but yeah, is it biological? Like you get handed the genes for anxiety, especially generalized anxiety disorder. You get handed the genes for bipolar disorder. It doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. Yeah, there's lots of things we can do, but we don't pick what biology we're handed. Yeah. Man, that's crazy to think you're just kind of like handed that deck and you got to, I guess that's true in anything in life. You're handed the deck you are and it you is. play it the best that you can. And that's why it's important to seek people who who understand it. So totally. when you did therapy, what kind of, what styles of therapy did you dive into personally? 
Yeah. So my therapist was called client centered. So this mm-hmm. is classic Carl Rogers, really warm, really reflective, left a lot of space. Mm-hmm. You know, it was my first time in therapy. And I remember us just sitting there in silence for long periods of time. Wow. You wouldn't normally see this someone doing cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, they're going to be giving you homework, guiding, being really instructive. Boy, we sat there. I think she really wanted me to sit in my emotions of, you know, my dad passing and now my brother, you know, is stuck in this substance use cycle that again, eventually he ended up passing away from. Um, But the one main thing she started incorporating in, because I was having a lot of panic attacks. Like, Mm. as you talked about, man, like us as men, it's like, the only real acceptable emotion that you get taught is anger. Yes. And it's like, even that for me, it's like my role in the family was the quote unquote good kid. So mm. I wasn't even really allowed to have that anger that way. That was even outside of me. So when my dad passed, I just really felt like I couldn't express anything. But so I started the way my body expressed that was I was having full blown panic attacks. Like I was wow. passing out left and right at school. It felt like my heart was exploding through my chest so my therapist worked with me using mindfulness meditation and i literally felt like i got my life back wow yeah when i first started therapy i I had no i i went to therapy for the first time at the beginning of 2021 so i waited a long time to 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 go that route and the first style of therapy i did was emdr therapy which i didn't realize was kind of (laughs) jumping in the deep end um, very specific form of treatment. Yeah. yeah. Targeting the trauma. Like you're right. Yeah. That's, I would agree with you. That's a deep end. I didn't have the proper respect for it the first time. And I went through a therapy session and then I went straight to, to like work. And then I'm at work just sobbing and not functional. And I was like, okay, we're never, do- <laughs> we're never doing that again if we can avoid it because it's really, it's it's crazy, it, but it's also incredible. What it was watching a memory change in mm-hmm. my brain. Amazing. What like this is stuff that I had carried with me for so long, and watching that memory. Like I'll give a a, sh- a short example. When I was growing up, I um, I experienced a lot of bullying when I moved mm-hmm. out to New Jersey. They 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 ate that Midwest kid alive. And I remember we, we only had like one black kid in our class. Someone else called him the N-word and he beat me up for that person saying it. And in the, it, you know, and I was getting like my face bashed in while kids were stepping over me because recess was done. Like not one person like intervened. By the end of that, by the end of that EMDR session, I was hugging him. Yeah. Wild, wild how that can happen. It's so wild. And like, I know a lot of the taglines for EMDR or another form of EMDR is called ART is like, you keep the memory, but your attachment to it is different. Like you can know factually what happened, but now when your brain goes back and replays it, you have these alternatives or kind of what you deserve to happen or what you wish would happen and your emotionality, your attachment to it is different now. Mm -hmm. And that's what all of us want. Like, who wants to be re-haunted? Like, I really appreciate you sharing that, but who wants to be haunted by that memory over and over again when you're like, you know, 30 years in the future in a completely new chapter, you want to be able to move on. And that's the beauty of treatments like EMDR. It allows you to move on and be focused in the chapter you're actually in. Yeah. I was haunted regardless. 
you know? Yeah. So yeah, change, yeah. so change the, change the way that you look at it, like a good, a good reframe, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's amazing how with the, talking to the proper person can really just, um, change that. Tra- I don't, I don't get rid of the trauma, but I'm not, I'm not triggered anymore. Um, yeah. well, or as much I, I do, I do my best. Um, how was, how was, uh, becoming a therapist? Like how was the process of going through school? What were the struggles like? What were the triumphs like? Like it had to have been tough. It's so, it's really humbling. Like Mm. it's really, really humbling. Cause like you can't go through the process of being a therapist and not be looking at yourself. Right. You know, a lot of cynical people on the outside be like, you know, all mental health professionals are just trying to fix themselves. I mean, they're not wrong in a way. I hope all of us are trying to right. correct some things out there. And what gets you interested in a certain field for 99% of people, it's like, yeah, you have personal life experience that made it motivating for you to go towards something that's you know of value. Mm-hmm. But it, you're looking at yourself constantly, constantly under the microscope. And it's, it's overwhelming because uh, programs can't mandate therapy. They can't by law mandate that you're in therapy while you're going through this intense training to try to help someone with their mental health. But I don't know anybody (laughs) who who made it through at least my doc program without getting their own therapy. Cause you're like, I got a lot of feelings coming up. I got a lot of things from my past and it's, it's just essential because of everything you're learning all the tools the techniques the ways to conceptualize problems difficulties you know through someone's cultural lens family background you're applying it to yourself mm. you're thinking you're your own case study in mm. that respect so it, it just brings out everything everything comes out so mm. it is very very intense but also oh my god it's, it's so rewarding that's why i love the field is like you get the privilege of having someone tell you things that they've never told anyone or express things that they've only like bottled up, you know, for most of their lives. Yeah, man. I I'm so fascinated with this stuff. When I got done with my, my last like round with my therapist, he kind of lightly suggested it was a Avenue that I should explore, but the idea of, of going that far in debt to explore it, uh, just, I, I don't know, man, I don't know. (laughs) School. That's, it's a real compliment either way. Like, oh, cause yeah. to me, like I, for, I would say that to someone who has a natural, like inkling towards reflection, compassion, someone who I feel like has a certain level of emotional IQ, Yeah, you know, everybody has their strengths for sure. Some people are very cognitive and do well as therapists, but yeah, you, you got to be interested in people and you got to have that compassion towards people to oh, be in the mental health. I love people. I do. I know you do. I love I know them. You I, and even the ones that are hateful towards me, I love them even harder because I understand that their hatred towards me. I mean, I will always take that moment for self-reflection, sure. um, to introspection. To un- Actually, I learned that in a very uh, kind of unhealthy environment. I was with this girl and she was very good. I would allow her (laughs) Mm -hmm. to manipulate. Thank you. (laughs) It took me a sec to manipulate me back into the relationship. She was very good at um, portraying it in a way where it seemed like I wasn't trying hard enough to save the relationship. Mm -hmm. So the last time we got back together, we went to couples therapy. 
I knew logically that this person was not someone that I even needed to go to couples therapy. The relationship should just end. But I literally wanted to be able to prove that I had done everything that I could, in, including investing money. Um, we didn't go to an unbiased therapist. We went to her therapist. Yeah. Is that unethical? Can you explain? Yo. Is that unethical? It saying it's unethical might be a little a little heavy. Okay. I would never ever do that. Okay. So for me and my values, because it clouds your judgment. Yes. But I know, uh, like this person can't be reported to the ethics board. We'll say that. Right. But. If you polled a hundred therapists and go, if you're treating someone for a long period of time, would you just all of a sudden then start seeing them as a couple? Not again, 90% of people would be like, hell no, my vision is clouded. I am biased. I'm biased towards them. That's why, yeah, I've never done that. Never will do that. And I have clients all the time who want that. They're like, oh, can can you see me and my partner? I'm like, no, I know I'm (laughs) I'm on your side. I'm your therapist. Yeah. Like I can't then all of a sudden be unbiased towards the two of you. I can't. And you have so much more information on that person. And and that would come out in the sessions. I would get just wrecked every session. But the one thing that I really took, well, two things. One, I had a habit of when her and I would break out, break up, the first thing I would do is reach out to a bunch of girls on social media and talk sexually. I wouldn't meet up with them. Um, she was, and she just looked at me she, and she looked at the girl I was dating. She goes, that has nothing to do with you. That's his, that's his own stuff. And I went, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was seeking validation through the attention of those people because I didn't feel good about myself in this relationship. The second thing, and the thing that I, I've applied in personally and in my connections with people is before I point the finger at someone and say, this is what you're doing wrong, I point the finger at myself and say, how could I have been better for this situation? And that introspection has made me a, a, so much more of a loving person and an understanding person to the world at large. I love that. And like, if you just think if everybody had the capacity to do that, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of people are suffering so greatly, and I know you know this, that they're afraid of that introspection. They don't have the tools for it. They're just hurt so badly because of their trauma or, again, poverty, or there's so many factors that can play in that it's just easier to project the pain outward. But yeah. it takes it literally takes real strength to go, okay, like I'm feeling a type of way right now. Maybe this person is intruding on my boundaries, but can I at least pause for a minute and think about what's my role in this? Because mm-hmm. maybe you come, like you said, maybe you come to the conclusion that, nah, nah, I don't really have much of a role here. But a lot of times I agree with you. You're like, no, I could have worded that better. Or actually in this video I just put out, you know, maybe I, I should have thought of this other group of people that just, ah, I forgot about that, that this could be ableist or this could be anything. Mm-hmm. Solid self-reflection, especially, I know, as you know, you put out so much content, like you're bound to have some misses. Like, it's just good to be a self-reflective person. You know what? I was a little short-sighted in that one. Mm -hmm. And as a therapist who also exists on TikTok, which in my opinion, and as someone who's been on pretty much every social media, including ones that no longer exist anymore, TikTok seems like the least introspective app that I have ever been a part of. It seems like everybody is so quick to point the finger 
and be down each other's throats and project all over them and treat it as truth. What do you see from a professional standpoint on TikTok? What are some of the things that you see? Is there truth? Do you see the same truth that I do? Or is this a cognitive dissonance for me? No, I, I see the same truth. But for me, I, I feel like it's gotten worse. And I don't know why. Yes. I, I really don't. Because I joined TikTok like literally right before the pandemic, like yes. a month or two before. Like so many did like in that bubble, that mm-hmm. kind of January to May of 2020 range. So many of us did jump in there. But I it wasn't – at first, that wasn't my experience. Like I, I didn't feel that it was like so – Everyone was just trying to point out other people's flaws. But I've I've felt it the past year, at least the past mm-hmm. year, that I am before I post anything, no matter how innocuous it is, of like this feels really benign. I'm just making it because I want to help some people think about their depression. It's just like I'm so on edge of like, oh my gosh, like who who is this gonna offend? And you know, on a one hand, great reflection, right? Especially for someone like me who comes from a lot of unearned privileges, like good reflection to have. But mm-hmm. I agree as a whole. I think for me, that could I post a lot, the two are Instagram or TikTok. I feel like generally, at least my following and the people on Instagram, they give you the benefit of the doubt. But on TikTok, I just feel like people, it's so quick that people are just angry. Yeah. I don't know why that is like between the apps. I don't know what it is about TikTok that it just feels like people are just really angry and they're just, they're not even absorbing maybe again, the content, the intent, the overall, they're just trying to find the flaw. And again, I'm with you that some of that leads to great reflection. You know what? You're right. Blah, blah, blah. But it also as a creator, I don't know, it'll wear you down where it's like, now I'm so hesitant to create material that I'm like, it just some days it doesn't feel worth it. It doesn't feel worth it to put this out there and then me having to battle comments of people just looking for the flaws in what I said or how I am. Mm-hmm. So how do you navigate that? Like oh. how like so I had, I mean, we're just we're gonna get into it. I had a, an unfortunate uh a, attack back in 2020, not on not on TikTok. Um and it almost, uh, I had to get talked down from ending my life because I needed other people to think I was a good person, to feel like I was a good person. Thankfully, I didn't do that. Um, And thankfully, I came to the realization that I am a good person and I don't need the validation of other people to do that. Fast forward, I've had multiple times where people get angry with me And now I just kind of, I talk to people who know me. I talk Mm. to people who like, who not yes people, because I don't surround myself with that, but someone who knows me. And I was like, can you go look to see what these people are saying? Because I know if I look, I'm a sensitive person. I am an HSP. It's part of my nature. It's really annoying sometimes. And I have them go look at what that person is saying. I was like, is there anything that I could change within myself? But it just seems like, I think with TikTok, you're exposed to such a larger group, like the virality of things. But I also think that there's so much benefit audience-wise to making content where you go after people. And I know that because that's how I built my following, was going after all these misogynistic people. And um, 
but I came to the realization that it, I don't think it really made a difference. I don't think any of it actually solves anything. I know people build their whole brand around that. And I just really took a step back and I was like, what does dogpiling on this one person actually accomplish? I'm curious your perspective on that. I, I couldn't agree more where you landed. Yeah. You know, as, as a psychologist, someone that works intensely one-on-one with people over weeks, months, even sometimes years, the amount of internal reflection, trust, compassion, you know, narrative sharing that you have to build for someone to change is monumental. Mm. So the idea that like one person, like almost like, I know it's not trolling, but aggressively correcting or just correcting, whatever, like duetting, stitching, doing all the things Mm -hmm. that that is somehow going to change this person. It's not, it it just isn't. And it doesn't mean, and this is where I agree to a certain extent, pointing out the wrongs has a place. I I agree with that. Like a, a video is going super viral. And I know you've done that. Like, and you champion the voice of being like, I want to explain kind of why this is wrong or why this might be harmful. That has a place. It has a great place. But when you lose the grip on, again, is this educational? Is this educational? Is it sort of corrective for the masses versus am I going at this person? Because to me, we have way too much of that already in our society. That's Mm -hmm. like divided on religion, red or blue. There's so much division That again, as someone like me, I work with people, regardless of your political background, regardless of your religious background, I I work with you. Self-selection comes into play. People tend to guess right about what my, you know, politics are and all the things. That's true. That's a factor. But at the same time, I care about all your mental health because I know if all our mental health is in a good place as a society, we can figure things out and we'll actually be more compassionate to more groups of people. But when people are suffering, no, we stay in our small little tribes, we point fingers and we fight. So yeah, the long-winded way to say, I don't think it's effective. I don't think it creates meaningful change. And yes, I think in some places it has a place because if you have unearned privileges like me, you have to decide at some point, I can't just stay in my privilege box. Like I have to be a voice of advocate for other people. If that's in your values. So, and it is, uh, the problem is depending on who I'm running across, I need to shut up and I need to speak and I need to know my place and stay in my lane and uh, silence is violence. And it's like, I'll give an example. Like I've been, I've been using my platform for advocacy since 2008. I've been in that space, having those conversations. It's interesting. My therapist actually said I was going to need to find different motivation to do the things that I do as I heal, because a lot of the reasons that I was doing advocacy as strongly as I was, is was providing the support for others that I did not receive myself. It was like based on a lot of, a lot of frustration and anger and wanting to provide that for other people. And I just find myself like, yeah, I just don't really like, <laughs> it's it's hard because I'm also usually the group that people are going after mm-hmm. and I can't control this. I can't control my sexuality. I can't control my gender. I can't control any of those things. Yet those are the things that I seem to be judged the harshest by. 
And I, I, it feels like I'm made to just sit and and be understanding. And I can be a un- understanding to a point. But how do you draw that line between being understanding and setting a boundary from being abused by people? It, it's a really hard one, especially on social media. Yeah. Like, I agree. And I think one of the hardest things to accept is like, it's impossible to please everyone. It just is. Mm-hmm. Like I get tagged in things all the time that like, will you, you'll make a video commenting on this person or go after this person or unfollow. I see you follow that person. You need to unfollow them. And it's like, I just can't, I cannot please everyone. Mm. I can try to be open and, you know, collect information and try to do better. But I think that's one of the hardest things of like, especially for someone like me, it's like I created my platform just because I wanted to share some mental health information that I've been privileged enough to earn. And then along the way, it's like, yeah, you see different points that you can take to, you know, be a voice of advocacy, to speak up for different things. But I agree with you is like, there is no universal truth to these things. So the number one thing, and it may sound selfish, but you have to be able to take care of yourself. And so in the long run, and this is a truth I've held for myself is like, if I know the overall truth is like, I've helped far more people Mm. than I've probably misstepped and hurt. That's the fuel that's going to keep me going to create more content to help people. And I know I don't have to worry for myself. I know for you that you're going to be ignorant enough to like, you know, close down for feedback. No, But the other side of it, which is really hard for all creators, is you have to learn whose voices, whose uh, feedback really matter. Because it can't be all these random people that you're never going to meet who do not know you. They don't know you. Mm -hmm. They really don't know you on that deeper level. All their voices can't matter as much as your close friend, a family member, somebody who knows your values, knows your personality, has known you over the long haul. At the end of the day, those will be the voices that truly matter. And it it sounds like you're already using them. But it's so important. It's so, so important because you go into those comments and you start getting all this hate or one person telling you this, the other person telling you the exact opposite. Like one person telling you to shut up, stop making these. The other person saying you need to make more of these. It's like, you just cannot please everyone. It's impossible. No, it's really, it's like exhausting because I always want to make sure that like everyone feels supported and heard. But some people are so attached to their victimhood that they almost don't want to um, grow. I, I don't know. Well, how do you how do you see that victim mindset showing up on on especially TikTok? Like, what are you what are you seeing? And like, say someone is like perpetually in that. How do they get themselves out of it? Because I, I don't know. In my opinion, like if you consistently, it doesn't mean you don't have legitimate things that are happening mm-hmm. to you, but you can't control a lot of those things. You can control your reaction. If you see someone in perpetual victim mindset, victimhood, what do you say to those people? Yeah, I've been lucky enough to work with a number of them as my clients. Mm-hmm. With that, if you just think of the psychological mechanism that's going on here is like when you go through trauma, especially if it's like repeated trauma, you know, you've been oppressed, um this is a way that can keep you carrying forward is you grab the steering wheel and you are out looking for threats, right? Mm. I'm hunting down the threats and I'm going to find them and I'm going to get this person canceled. I'm going to get this person fired and I'm going to expose this person. 
it's a response to being trampled over. It's a response to being brushed aside, minimized, sometimes abused. Like it's a real trauma response for many, many people. And it it's valid. It is absolutely valid. But in my work, working with people is a lot of people lose themselves in that behavior. Exactly what you alluded to, that they become someone who's so reactive that they don't feel any sense of peace themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't have moments of of joy, moments of feeling like, again, neutrality. It's just like always in hypervigilant fight or flight state. And that is, you get burned out. It, it's not to say the anger is valid. What they went through was horrible and is horrible for a lot of them, right? Because it's ongoing. Some of it's societal. And when you get to work with people, you hear them, you validate them they're able to come to some place where it's like, what's a balance for me? Mm. And how do I want to live my life? Because going through life carrying a blowtorch is a heavy, heavy burden. Mm. How are you seeing the effects of social media showing up in your sessions? What what are some, co- do, you see, do you see that? And like, what are some common things that you see that people bring up that seem to be associated with exposure to social media? Yeah, mother algorithm. Yeah, <laughs> mother man. algorithm. It's just the the dopamine that this causes in people's brains is like even that of like these algorithms learn what keeps you on there. The mm-hmm. algorithm learns what's going to make you jump in the comments, and all of a sudden you're applying twenty comments to this one video. The algorithm says thumbs up. We got them. Like we got them here. The algorithm algorithm isn't asking, is this good for you? Right. Is it good for you to be inundated with something so closely tied to your trauma that you have trouble disconnecting? Mm-hmm. The algorithm doesn't care. Yeah. Doesn't care about that. It's just you're so engaged. We're real happy over here in TikTok land now. That's it's a huge problem because our brains aren't designed to be like, wait, why am I pulled so much this thing? I'm like everybody else, right? I'm on sides of TikTok. And sometimes I'm the one that has to pause and be like, what? Wait, why? Why am I consuming this right now? Like, why is this something I have to see? And for all of us, it's like, yeah, like you got to ask yourself, am I, am I being pulled into something that is no longer good for my mental health? And that's that's tough because these apps were literally designed to keep us there and keep the dopamine hit going. Mm-hmm. There's a I forget the name. It's a Netflix documentary. I want to say The Social Network, but I think that's that Facebook movie. But basically, they had a bunch of people who uh, who created a lot of the stuff that we use today, like from Google and Twitter and uh, Pinterest and Facebook and all that stuff. And the one of the most telling things that I saw was um, one of the guys who started one of these companies refuses to let his children use it. Which to what? me, <laughs> that's so unethical, but I mean, ugh, yeah, it's like, pretty- what a dead giveaway. Yeah. What a de- dead giveaway of like, you know, well enough that the people you would want to protect the most, you're like, you're not going, you're not going on this. Mm-hmm. You're not using this. That's very telling. Okay. Yeah. And it, no, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say the, the interesting thing about the research though, is this is like some research shows that social media can exacerbate things like anxiety, depression, body image concerns. But there's other research that shows that increasing your time on social media doesn't impact or change your mental health. 
So it's interesting. And that's from a very reputable longitudinal study where they looked at people over 10 years. Hmm. I think it really comes down to, and this is what a lot of people are kind of coming down to. It's not about being on social media. It's what you're doing on there, which seems obvious, right? That that's obvious, but that's the truth. It depends. What side of TikTok are you on? Are you watching puppy videos all day? That's probably not bad for your mental health. Uh, you know, yeah, that's maybe just that's been like that's been kind of the struggle with me and TikTok. And my personal shift is like because I was part of that side of TikTok that would go after people, and I would usually go go after men. Um, now I'm stuck in this perpetual for you page of. Of, and I'm not saying men don't deserve to be criticized. I think anybody, but some of the discussions are, I can't wait for all men to be dead. Um, I was marching in when Roe v. Wade passed through the streets of Denver next to a sign that said, cut all of men's dicks off. And like, I'm trying to find that middle ground behind, be, between being supportive of that and also calling out stuff that I feel is like truly detrimental. And I feel like I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to call out men, but if I call out women, the backlash is just almost like not worth it. And it makes me stay silent. And I don't know if it's just the side of TikTok that I'm on or, or there is just a huge difference between the way men and women receive critique or criticism I don't know if you've seen any of this or you have any commentary on it. I'm trying to like figure out how to be supportive, but also how, <laughs> how to be like, hey, what you're saying is like really harmful. And I'll hear stuff like, well, if it affects you, then obviously you're part of the problem or we didn't mean you. And it's just like, it's so easy to be, oh, you're a misogynist for calling that out. It's like, well, I'm, I'm just not a misogynist. I'm trying to figure out how to live in that space healthily. And I... <laughs> I'm kind of at a loss. It, and it goes to show like all these movements can have real merit. Of course mm-hmm. they have merit, but it's another thing to say that all these movements have core universal truths that everyone believes. No, no, no. In any movement, you might have a subgroup of people who are like, we hate men. Yeah. Men are awful. But then you have a, other groups of people who are like, if we make men the enemy, nothing's going to change. We want to be able to be open and discuss and be able to be like, listen, like kind of classic feminist view of like men are part of this too. The problem is women are the ones getting oppressed here and having this glass ceiling put over them. But men are also victims in a different light of like, you are told that you must behave in a certain way where you're not even allowed to have an emotion. And that emotion, again, if you even if you hurt us, the way we raise men in this society is that it's weak. Mm-hmm. It would be weak to you know, listen to a woman or change your opinion, change your mindset, grow. Like you think of the classic ways misogyny comes out. It's like, stay rigid, stand your ground, like no matter what. And it's like, that's a problem. Yeah. Why do we think men became that way? We're, right? It's a societal problem. But, you know, I go back to in any movement, you have people who believe different things. Yeah. Like you, in that march that you're in, it's great to be a part of. A hundred of those people are thinking different things, like mm-hmm. different textures of things, things, ideas of what needs to be changed at any one time. 
But I think as an individual, you're allowed to have your opinions. You're allowed to have your thoughts. And I think for all of us, it's it's staying open-minded to others. But it, it's hard when you're out there trying to do the right thing uh, as human beings who are naturally flawed. We're always growing. And you get called out in such aggressive ways that it makes you be like, well, now I don't even want to share my voice anymore. The heat is just not worth it at this point. It's like, I can't, I want to have a discussion, but the, some of the people that go after me, they want to have a mob that like, it's like it, they just want you to be quiet because they don't agree with the way that you said something. Cause I, I know I'm not a misogynist. I've advocated for women for a long time. Part of advocacy to me is also being able to call someone out if they're acting in a way that is is harmful. And um, it just seems it seems really imbalanced. And I guess it's just focusing on on where you're gonna have those discussions. That's why I have those discussions here where you can hear all of the nuance and um less stuff. I mean, stuff's gonna get taken out of context regardless. Um True. but I think it's important to express these things in an environment where we can actually like dive into what what's going on uh, in a way that people will see that like, it's not coming from a place of hate. It's coming from, I, when I critique someone, it's because I believe in them. It's because I believe in their ability to, to shift. And if they don't think they need to, that's fine. But if I, if I see problematic behavior, I call it out in anybody. And I feel like that's respect, but some people, I mean, no one likes getting criticized. No, no one really, enjoys that at all no but like let's be real like to say that you know no matter how i come at you chris if i have a criticism no matter how i say it no matter how i come at you that it you should just be able to absorb it that's it's bullshit Mm. right Mm. like i think the fact and what i will say and i know a lot of people agree with this unfortunately the leaders we've had lately especially in the u.s have not model or modeled rather cordial discourse. No. Where you're open, you're malleable, you're flexible. I'm open-minded to hearing from this group. Listen, you can believe whatever you want to believe. Barack Obama modeled that greatly. Yes. Excellent did. model for discourse. Yes. Right. But this matters. This ma- this if if nothing else matters about president, they are modeling how we interact as a Americans. Mm -hmm. And when you have a model up there who calls people's names and is just super fiery and again, goes at the world with a blowtorch, I think you see people unconsciously model that discourse. And yes, as a psychologist, I know it's terrible for our society. It's terrible where you can't disagree and respect someone. Like we can disagree mm. and I can still respect Civil you. discourse that seems to be out the door. It used to be a thing. Mm. I have a theory and I'm curious what you think about this. I think one of the reasons that we aren't able to have civil discourse is because ideas are identities instead of just ideas now. It's, it's not that you think this, it's you are this, you know, someone is, I am conservative, not I have conservative ideas. Do you think that's one of the reasons that people are so resistant because they don't feel like you're attacking an idea, they feel like you're attacking them directly? Yeah, and I think it goes into the polarization of our political climate Mm -hmm. where it's like, it is. Like, you're just red or you're blue. Like, right? Like, but what a limited scope 
right? Mm -hmm. To think from of you're this or you're that, where it's like the reality is no matter what side you're on, when you hold people issue by issue by issue, you'll start to see there's a lot of overlap and there's unique differences because we're, we are all unique. That is the one thing I definitely agree with. We are all this beautiful, unique snowflake because of our experiences. That's a beautiful thing. The culture, the family, where you grew up, the era you grew up in, you are a unique person, but that should be celebrated. It shouldn't be like, well, you either perfectly have to fit into this bubble or we're against you. And that, again, in our societal problems, the oppositional mindset of you're either this or you're my enemy, oh, I think in the U.S. has gotten horribly bad, that's, which, again. That sounds like something I covered in CBT, uh, black and white thinking or catastrophizing. That's it. It's absolutely. That so, how does, so how does somebody combat black and white thinking or catastrophizing? Uh, you humanize people. How do you, you do that? You have to gain diverse experiences. How do you do that? Which is the How hardest thing to do. You Help. talk to people. <laughs> yeah. Help. Help me. I'm trying Solve to make a difference problems. here. It's really difficult though. <laughs> <laughs> but I really mean this. Like you have to put yourself in situations where you interact with people that are not in your echo chamber. And I'll mm. share my experience of that. Like I grew up, you know, Akron, Ohio, in Northeast Ohio. Um, you know, kind of suburban kind of life living or whatever. But most of the people I interacted with were pretty liberal. Mm -hmm. And I went to a very liberal undergrad, Kent State University, kind of like a classic hippie university. Um, but I got my PhD at the time. It was the number one conservative school in America by US World and News. That's Auburn University. Mm. That's where I got my PhD. And I was exposed to a culture Although, yes, it's very white. So you could be like, well, and that it's white people, Justin, you're white. Of course, that's true. But as far as mindset, mm. tradition, religion, politics, dead ass opposite of what I knew. And it allowed me to humanize those people. I didn't walk away from there and be like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, I'm a badge carrying Republican. No, but it allowed me to understand in nuanced form how they form their beliefs, their culture, and what they stand for. And how, again, I can respect that and disagree. Mm -hmm. And I can ask questions and form close relationships with people and not necessarily have to hide who I am, but we can still connect. I don't have to stand across from you in the metaphoric aisle and just be like, I'm never going to talk to that person. But on TikTok, that's how we live right? You are in your side of TikTok. Uh, you're, you're on your side of the aisle. And sometimes you yell across. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, this is something that I used to do back in my YouTube days. Most of my advocacy was in the LGBT community. The reason that right. kicked off in 2008 is because Proposition 8 passed in California and stripped the rights away from gay people to marry. And I purposefully would sit down with homophobic or bigoted people. I wouldn't make content around it. I wasn't trying to elevate them, but I was trying to understand them. So I have the word listen tattooed on my chest right here. It's a lesson from my grandmother. The wholesome version of it is a lot of times when people are looking for advice, they're just looking for someone to listen. The less wholesome version, because I was raised by spicy women. Um, she said, when you meet someone who thinks they know everything, sit and listen, because then you know what you know plus what they know. 
And my purpose, and this is where I feel like people miss in their ability to make a difference. My purpose, when I sit down with someone who I know, if I'm sitting across from a homophobe, I know I disagree with their mindset on that. There's no question about that. But now I understand why. What I see people do is they try to change that person instead of just introduce new information because ignorance is just a lack of information. So I call myself a thought disruptor. I'm going to insert my thought into your brain in hopes that maybe someday you'll use that information. But I also understand this person has had a lifetime of programming. And if you think one conversation with you is going to change that, frankly, you're arrogant then. You're, You're part of the problem. I'll add to that because that was beautiful. Thank you. And I agree so much. Mm-hmm. I love everything about that. The research is pretty clear, especially when it comes to LGBTQ, is people who are the most bigoted and ignorant, homophobic. The one thing that we found in the research is all it takes is for someone to have one, one person in their life that they care about who's mm-hmm. LGBTQ. And that is the biggest predictor of someone being an advocate, an ally, and not homophobic. Mm -hmm. If that's the biggest predictor as a person coming, and that's a big ask, right? Like, I'm not telling people out there who identify as gay or LGBTQ, like, go out there and befriend all these people who are homophobic. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, if you think yelling at people and positioning yourself even more as the enemy is the answer, I'm sorry to say you're dead wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm with you. It's frustrating, bullshit in many respects. But the only way truly to change someone's mind is to hear them and be compassionate. And truly, at the end of the day, for them to care enough about you that it drastically changes the way they see it. Because now you humanize them, they're humanizing you, Mm -hmm. and you're connecting. Boy, that squashes ignorance in a hurry. Mm-hmm. I, I understand why a lot of people don't do that because they have a lot of anger around a lot of the thing, the subject matter. That's actually one of the reasons why me as a straight man would enter those conversations because I am using that privilege of not having as much of an emotional connection to facilitate a conversation where I am less reactive. Say somebody is of those groups, of those experiences, wants to have those discussions, what kind of guidance would you give them in order for them to be less reactive? Or do you tell them, hey, if you can't do it, then don't? Yeah. And yeah, as a straight white man, like, I just feel like it's not my place to tell people who have been oppressed and marginalized and pushed aside what they should or shouldn't do. I I think- I agree with you. It's it's on us. It's people like us, Chris, who need to use our voices, get off our chairs of unearned privilege and be part of the conversation. Yeah. I, I agree with that because it can't always be. And that's again, that's a point I always agree with as an advocate or an ally is like it can't always be the people who are being pushed down to have to yell up. Like I agree There's in the long run, nothing's not enough change. of a voice as well. A lot of these groups no. are a minority voice. And so they need right. people, they need numbers to push the legislation, especially to truly make a change. But from a therapist standpoint, if someone wants to enter these conversations, you're not telling them whether they should or should not. How do you guide someone to be less reactive in those discussions or do you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's internalizing. If you can, it's internalizing a bit of the truth of like, if you just think about the times in your life that you were really heard by someone, mm. that someone really tried to know you and know about you, those are the times we experience intimacy and closeness with people. Mm. That's the true nature of psychotherapy. The biggest predictor of change in psychotherapy is the client's perspective of closeness in the relationship. That's the biggest predictor of change. Not how smart your therapist is, not how like, what psychotherapy they use, not where they went to school, not anything, is how close the client feels like you hear them, understand them, value them, all these uh, therapeutic relationship measures. If you apply that to the real world, if you really want to get through to someone in some capacity, you have to model that you care about their voice. Mm. And that's really hard to it do is. when someone's voice and what they share is naturally harming you and harming the people you love and care about in the community that you're from. So I, I get why it's a big ask. And yet the times I've seen people create very meaningful change, it's ironic that in a lot of the ways we're talking right now, I've seen it change in group therapy because you get a lot of uh, peer-like people coming together and oh. diverse people no. coming together. Like no, if there no. was something I could... I love my echo chamber. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if there was something that could like force... Yeah. on our nation or society, it would be that. It'd be everybody has to attend these eclectic groups mm -hmm. where we talk, share, and can listen to each other. Because I know, I know it absolutely squash a lot of ignorance, racism, bigotry, mm -hmm. because you would start to humanize people yeah. that you're not humanizing. See them beyond their category and see them as just another person experiencing life trying their best mm -hmm. in their flawed ways. Okay. I, 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 yeah. I have one question that involves something particular to me. I, I, I didn't want to like say too many things because also I'm not your client, but I, I just want your perspective. This is not a diagnosis, but I'm curious. I, let's just put it out there. I was a whore for a long time. I hooked up so, so much. None of those relationships really not, I don't want to say none, very rarely would it amount to anything, but I was so quick to jump in into bed. Did the two years of therapy, now I don't have sex anymore. I interact with people um, and it falls apart before I can even get to the, the sex part of it. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> what, I just like what happened. Like, I, I I miss touching someone, but on the same token, something changed when I healed. Because I mean, so, a lot of the stuff that I dealt dealt with in EMDR was I was raped. I have experienced sexual assault multiple times. I, I don't know. I'm just like I'm. I'm a little desperate to understand what is going on. Like. I know I still like women. <laughs> I know I still desire them, but man, it's been a dry 2022. I I really appreciate you sharing that. I, what I know to be true as humans, the hardest thing to find is the middle. So you've experienced the extremes. I think life living in the extremes is the easy. 
right? Yeah. Like, I think it's easy just to be like completely give in to the id, this animalistic nature that's just like, I want to fuck everything. Yeah. And it's like, again, we can experience different sizes of sex drive. There's individual differences of that, of course. But we we have this side of us that's very just sexual. We can yeah. objectify people and just be like, give it to me. And then you can be on the other side where you're just absorbing the emotionality of a person. And it's almost like that animalistic side is so far away and you almost demonize it. Like, how could I pot this diverse, complex person sitting before me? How could I just objectify them and, mm -hmm. you know, lust over their body? But the reality is we have both and mm -hmm. we have the capacity for both and we can do both and enjoy both. It's way harder than just living in an extreme, yeah, an extreme where you say, well, that side's totally bad. So I just don't want to bring that out. Or again, I'm only going to be this and be a partier and just hook up and not, you know, be vulnerable with anybody. No one's really getting through the surface layer here. That's where the, the real work would come into play. It's like what my challenge for you, you know, if you were my client or whatever, it's like, how do you start incorporating into your dating this true sexual side that we all have? Like, how do you do that in a way that's fun, that's exciting, and of course, respectful? Yeah. But it I, sounds like you, you've experienced life on the extreme. Yeah. What I, what, what the common thing that I'm finding, which is really interesting because, because I listen to, to women speak quite, quite a bit. I have great relationships with women. I listen to them talking about wanting these emotionally available, emotionally intelligent, consistent men. And what, what I'm finding is that's actually been a struggle that um, when I am vulnerable, when I am open, it's like they don't know the women I have pursued, or at least the women I've come across, they, I, I terrify them. Like they say, I don't know what to do with you because I don't fit into a preconceived notion of their previous experiences. And it's just like, I try not to personalize. That was another thing that I really needed to, to work on. But if it happens so many times, I'm just like, what is the pattern here? What, <laughs> something's, well, I, something's going on there, you know? And it's, it's not to say for sure, because maybe you're just, you know, weeding out people that aren't a good match for you. I mean, that could be, it's a possibility there. But on the other side, yeah, maybe there's something too that we're still sexual beings. Mm. Maybe some of that spiciness, the flirtation, the little bit of lustiness, maybe because of your growth and what you've been through, maybe that's been so contained that you're not in that sphere with someone in that playful way. That yeah. again, when you talk about healthy relationships, relationships can look so different for each person. So it's not to say there's one, but for most people, you want some of that at least. You want some of that fun, the sexualizing, a little bit of object objectification. Like again, you want some. But the, of course, you also want to have the great intimate dinner conversations and connect. But I, I would wonder for you, and you know better than me, like have you completely you know, put that box, that sexual box in the attic and that's away and that's not even something you're pulling out. I can't yeah, even get I can't even get to the date at this point because it's just like my interactions I'm just like no like I just I it, maybe it's just so here's the theory and I actually just made a TikTok that I used sex 
my ability to perform. Because when I was doing MDR, my core belief was worthiness. I struggle with worthiness. So my theory is that I was using my sexual ability to keep people around, to get people to stay. But that connection is so surfacy that it does. And I'm somebody who seeks depth in my connections with people that it just, it just fizzles out if that's really what your relationship is based on. So maybe it's not that it's maybe it's because I'm not leading with it anymore. And the other stuff is a lot harder that, that, that actual connection with someone I'm going to rapid fire some words that I hear perpetually used that are based in that are diagnosable things, things that you would talk about in therapy. And I want to hear your perspective on what that word means. Mm. You got this? I'll try my best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear the word gaslight a lot. Yeah. What does it mean? What does it actually mean to gaslight somebody? Yeah, gaslighting is often used when somebody tries to manipulate your truth, right? tries to manipulate the truth of what experienced, what happened. But it's one of those things where it's like, you'll name your side of a situation and the other person will say, well, that never happened. That That's absolutely not what happened. And on the simplest form, it'd be like someone who's like, you're such an idiot. You're so stupid in the middle of a fight. And then later when you try to repair that bridge, you'd be like, listen, when you insulted my intelligence, like it made me feel like I didn't want to continue the conversation. They're like, I never said that. I never did. You're you're really mm. sensitive though about that. So I can imagine why you might have thought I said that. Oh. That's classic gaslighting. Oh, I know. That okay, right? yeah, it that makes must, your I know I've been there. Like you just uh, yeah, I didn't Yeah, uh, and how do you tell the difference between a different perspective and gaslighting? Yeah, and it's like, I know we try not to use the word crazy a lot. But it's crazy making it, it, is the actual term, correct? Right, because it makes you start to feel like you're crazy. Like the classic term was like, you know, and I don't even know how true this folklore is, but like a guy used to flicker the gas in the home because it was all the candle lights would come on with the gas. And so the wife would always be like, do you see that? Do you see the lights flicking? And he was flicking the lights. He was controlling gas. He'd be like, no, no, I'm not seeing anything. Do you, you think the lights are flickering? Again, that's the that's where that term comes from. You're observing something and someone's telling mm. you and trying to convince you that your truth is wrong. You're not seeing those candles flicker. Something's wrong with you. Your, your brain's not working right. When somebody can't hold your truth, just know it's the biggest red flag you'll ever see. You know, maybe that they're so blind to the truth of themselves that they can't compassionately hold yours as well. Maybe. But on the other side, they could be intentionally gaslighting you. Yeah. Either way, it's the worst red flag. When you're telling somebody what your experience is, what your truth is with something, and they literally dismiss it and make you feel like you're crazy for thinking oh. that. That's when you start to be like, ooh, this is not good. I like disagreed with someone in a comment section about their perspective on something. And I got told I was gaslighting them. And I was like, I don't think no. that's what that is. I think I just look at it differently than you do. Correct. And you, I'm sure you could repeat back what their, and maybe not in this moment, but repeat back what their perspective is. It's like, oh, you think this. Okay. And yeah, because I, I could see why they thought that. 
I just thought differently. But if I said your perspective is wrong, well, not even, I don't even think that's gaslighting. Uh, That's just my opinion. Not necessarily. You would have to attack that though they have a flawed way of like experiencing it. And Mm. I know this gets like super nuanced. It's like you would almost need an example to be like, is that disagreement or gaslighting? But yeah, people like to use gaslighting a lot lot. when it's probably just a difference of opinion. Narcissist. I see that word used a lot. What is a narcissist? Yeah. A narcissist is somebody who has a very long standing pattern of control needing control, having a tough time, um, not just pursuing things for their own self-interest, like a true narcissistic personality disorder. They only pursue anything for their own Mm self-interest. And most of the time it's to control a situation, to dominate a situation. And so they lack the ability to really see things through another person's lens, be compassionate towards other people, um, and so they can manipulate, they can do sort of all gaslight, they can do all the things to be in control uh, and again, have their truth be the only truth in a room. Mm-hmm. We had a we had a president who modeled that pretty well. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. I'm sure no <laughs> one does. A sociopath. Yes. So I know everyone's. It's just like I see, I see these words thrown around. The reason I'm doing this is because I see these words thrown around so much, but a lot of them have really deep, important meaning. And I feel like if we just blanket the world with these statements because we don't like someone, it really devalues the victims of the people who experience narcissistic abuse, gaslighting, sociopathic abuse from somebody like. I want people to understand that these are serious terms. Yeah. And I've never worked with an individual who probably fell into this range. So this is out of my expertise. But my understanding is it's somebody who does not have in any way, shape or form the ability to feel experience emotions. And therefore, it's you you cannot in any capacity begin to understand the emotional experience of another. And that's sort of why stereotypically people, when they hear sociopath, they just think of serial killers, where it's like, there's no question that some serial killers met that profile. Mm-hmm. But it's not to say because you're a sociopath, that's necessarily going to make you a serial killer. Right. So how do you feel like do you do you feel like there is damage from people using these terms so freely or Yeah, yeah, there definitely can be. I think, you know, there's an interesting discussion to be had like people who go through like let's use narcissism, someone who has been through narcissistic abuse mm-hmm. or or had a narcissist in their life. The interesting lens is if you start accepting sort of a biological view of this and your know, narcissistic personality disorder has been around, right? Mm-hmm. Just like borderline personality disorder, like these criteria have been here. People love to really demean and shame and bash narcissists. And part of that is like, who wants to be a victim? No one does. No yeah. one wants to be abused or a victim of one of these things. But it is interesting, and this gets into the taboo part about mental health generally, is so how much do we shame people who their brains and they might have 
again, a biological difference here. You know, you can fill in Kanye West into this, right? He has been diagnosed with bipolar type one. And again, from what I've heard, I've never diagnosed him, right? So I can't say for sure. But part of that is he has psychotic episodes. And yet I see people bash Kanye West left and right. It's not to say that his behaviors should be celebrated, but as a psychologist, when I think through the lens of someone who might have severe mental health, yeah, I don't think it's great to be running around bashing people and using terms that you're you're bashing someone that we would hope would get the right amount of help and maybe could work on these things. But also they were handed, like I said in the beginning, a certain deck of cards. Mm-hmm. And because you have a different deck of cards, it's interesting to think about how much are you going to bash this person? So how do you, I mean, because, you know, Kanye West, as an example, has said some like truly awful and offensive Genius. things, done some Genius. really awful things. How how do you meet someone like that with any compassion? Well, I don't think we should drop the lens of, again, if it's true, I can't diagnose someone I've never met. But if it's true that he has bipolar type 1, full manic episodes, and some of those episodes can be psychotic, how can you be a compassionate person, but you're going to disregard that lens? Again, all of us can hold the lens and still say, this behavior isn't good. This behavior is damaging. You damage this person when you said this. You damage that person when it said that. But if you just burn him, fillet him, again, aggressively, you know, some of the things I've seen posted about him, I know those people aren't looking at him through the lens of severe mental health. Mm-hmm. And if you're not doing it for him, who are you going to do it for? I, I mean that generally. Like, I think all of us need to be held if, if there's something we struggle with. Like, we need to honor people's mental health. If you want to honor the person who has anxiety, how are you not going to honor the person who has bipolar? I mean, I think it kind of goes back to the conversation we had earlier about LGBT, about in order for someone to shift, they have to have someone who they care about be a member of that community. I think you have a particular, I mean, you're a psychologist, so obviously that's part of it. But like, I think you have a particular soft spot because of what your brother went through. 100%. And that's, you're nailing it on the head, Chris. So all the people out there who might be listening, if you don't know someone who has full manic episodes and deals with bipolar and might go into, you know, psychosis at times, this is foreign for you. Mm-hmm. But then that's where I go to. And how do we have compassion for things, for people that are foreign for us? Again, it doesn't say the behavior's okay, right? but we still got to hold the lens up of what their brains and what they experience. I think that's where most people struggle is they want the person to be accountable. Um, and that seems to take priority over pretty much anything. Like it's, they, they want to go after that person to correct the behavior, but they don't want to investigate deeper as to the source as to why. Yeah. And I, I agree. It's a lot easier just to project ourselves and be like, everyone out there has the same neural chemistry as me, but it's not true. Right. Yeah. Just like for me and you or people with unearned privilege, like imagine if we do that, we're just going to be oppressors the rest of our lives then. 
right? Yeah. You can't just go out in the world and project your experiences and truth onto everyone. I mean, I, you got to gain information. You, you should have conversation. You should, but I mean, people will do what they do. I think as we, I think what's going to really make a difference or it should start to make a difference is we start treating invisible injuries and illnesses the same we do physical. If someone was had a broken leg, you wouldn't ridicule them for not being able to walk up a set of stairs as well as you can. So I think once we start to really see these these things, these mental mental struggles that someone has as an actual ailment instead of just this person's kind of an asshole, um, I think that will probably hopefully shift things in the in the right direction. You're totally right. And the, the last thing I wanted to add to that is like, I hold the media accountable to the mm. highest over random person in Louisiana or Michigan who's in the comment section. No, you as a media outlet, which again, you got to have a whole conversation about this. Yeah. You are responsible that if you focus all your energy on what Kanye is doing and you keep magnifying him, you're the problem, right? Because now you're the one who's using your microphone to just throw this out here. And I know you're not respecting his mental health. That's what, again, that's you're what putting we're talking it about on, on a TikTok. pedestal. It's so, there's so much benefit I, to I highlighting this and being ugly. Cause people be like, yeah, get them. And then that person is even more entrenched in their ideas. And then we wonder why nothing changes. It lacks compassion. Exactly. Yeah. Where, where, where is the compassion there? Yeah. And so it's, it's hard because sometimes being compassionate is you, you hold up truths of like, I don't approve of this behavior. This behavior shouldn't be in our society. And I'm still going to have compassion that this person has a severe mental health problem. And by now, if you've been following Kanye West, if you don't believe that, then you're ignorant. Yeah. You have to know that he is struggling and suffering. Mm -hmm. He is. Yeah. Okay. One more question. Sure. Um, my therapist that I have now was my fourth attempt to have a therapist. If someone is listening to this and they're getting inspired and they want to seek a therapist, but they're they're not sure what a good therapist should feel like or speak like, like for, that works for them. What are some things that people should look for in their initial session with a therapist to know that it's a good match for them? That has to be the best question that you could possibly ask. <laughs> yeah. I'm being dead serious. Because it, it's the most frequent question I get asked, but not in the nuance that you just asked it, which is the best. People say, how do I, the most common question I get asked is how do I find a therapist? But what you asked is what the real question is. How do I find the right therapist? And how would I know if it's the right? Mm -hmm. The most simplest way is that you should feel seen, heard, and understood. It sounds like, so simple, right? Trust what you're feeling in those initial interactions. Sometimes your therapist will get it wrong. They'd be like, oh, were you really angry? And you're like, no, no, actually, I was really confused in that situation. See how they pivot with you. They're like, oh, you're confused. Okay. They ask you another question. They lead you on. They're curious. They're collecting information. You should feel their investment in you. And you should feel like, I really feel like they're doing their best to try to understand the world through my lens, not just projecting their lens onto me. That's mm -hmm. a bad therapist. It's bad therapy to be like, 
here, uh, here's a worksheet of ways that you can work on deep breathing between now and next time. Have they talked to you about that? Is that something the two of you co-created together? Were you aligned and that that's what you wanted for you? Again, you should really feel like this is your therapy. Your therapist is right beside you, co-creating, trying to understand you the best you can. But if you walk out of that first session and you're like, man, they didn't really get this part. I think they were still confused about that. I don't really feel like they heard me on this. It's probably not a good fit for you. I usually ask people to at least go twice. It's your money. It's your investment. It's your insurance. So, And it's your time. I get it. But I do know because of a lot of people's trauma and history that they can often look for the wrong and kind of make an excuse like I'm not going back. When in reality, like kind of like going on a second date or meeting up with anybody for the second time, you get a better feel. If, if you go that second session. But again, the minimum after a first session, they're actively trying to hear, see me, and understand the world through my lens. You have to be able to trust them. Like, just trust your gut. I think a lot of people ignore that. But how am I going to open up to someone who I don't feel seen or heard or trust? You know, I think some people think they should just gut it out. But ultimately, that the therapist works for you. And if it's not yeah, working right. for you, it's okay to like move on. The first, the first therapist I tried to look at when I came here. So this like this paw print that's right here was my dog Wrigley. Uh, she got hit by a car as a puppy and died in my arms. So that was obviously a traumatic situation. And when I had, I, I brought that up in like the initial like sheet that I sent in. And when he was talking to me, he was like, oh, that must've been like so hard for you. And I felt infantilized. <laughs> I was like, I understand that this was a, I know that this was harmful. I don't want someone who's going to be like, and tell me how that feels. So when I talked to the therapist that I eventually worked with, I was like, look, I know that this stuff is harmful. I'm ready to take this weight off of me. I'm ready to do the work. Don't baby me. Don't coddle me. Let's just get to it. And he was like, cool. That was it. And after that, it was a wonderful relationship. Love that. And listen, sometimes, like you had said, it's just not the right fit for you. Yes. And I think that's more often the truth. You know, yes. I'll see people all the time. People share with me like, I had an awful therapist. And they might have. And people can certainly have traumatic experiences with therapists. Trust me, that does happen. But I think the most common thing is it's just not the right fit for you. Mm -hmm. That's okay. It's like going on a date and you're like, no, nah, I'm not really feeling it. That's okay. Like you said, that therapist works for you. Again, that therapist might be a great fit for someone else. It doesn't have to for you though. Yeah. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't enjoy, it felt like pity and something in me was no. just like really resistant to that. <laughs> I don't, no. My therapist, the one I worked with, he was like, you came in, <laughs> you knew exactly what you wanted to do. We executed, we went through this fast, faster than any other client. I was like, well, I waited till I was almost 40 to see you. So I was really ready to go at that point in time. I was tired of carrying all this stuff. And he was like, perfect, let's go. Um, but yeah. Love that, love that. It is, the fit is the most important thing. And sometimes, yeah, you gotta try a couple and, but you will find someone. A lot of people, they'll have that one bad experience of like, I hate therapy. That that literally always breaks my heart because I'm mm -hmm. like, trust me, it, it says more about that therapist than it does therapy in general. Because mm -hmm. 
any different person you get connected with, therapy is going to look very different and feel different for you. Yes. So if people are inspired by you and want to reach out to you, where are the where's the best places to do that? Oh, totally. Yeah. Hit me up uh, at a modern therapist. TikTok, Instagram are the two places you can find me the most. You can also check out my podcast, Drop In with Dr. J. I do my best to answer your mental health questions, but man, I'm, I'm so grateful to connect with you. I've yeah. been absorbing your content for years. Thank you so much for your time and, and thanks for being on Unfiltered Friends. Thank you, man. Thank you, Justin, for being on Unfiltered Friends. If you were inspired by what he said or want to learn more, make sure you check out A Modern Therapist. I'll have all of his social media listed down below. And once again, this is an independently funded podcast. So if you want extra podcast episode, be able to ask questions to the people we have on here. Handwritten letters, one-on-one calls. Make sure you go to patreon.com slash unfiltered friends. And until next week, this has been Unfiltered Friends.